you'll take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 26. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Working through this Who's Your One campaign. Like I said earlier, it's all about the gospel. And, and we kind of have focused on three different things that we're challenging ourselves to do. One is to invite someone to church. We looked at the four friends who brought their friend to Jesus. And one way we can help bring people to Jesus is to literally, physically bring them to church, invite them to come to church with us. And there's some, some neat little cards that we've made available um, that are down here at the front and in the back that just says, you're invited. And it's got all the service times and the information about the church. And there's a lot more of these if you need more. These are great to pass out, leave with a tip at a restaurant, hand to somebody that you're talking to at Walmart, and just invite them to come to church with you. Uh, we still have the Who's Your One bookmark up there as well, just as a reminder to keep that person's name in front of you to pray for them. Uh, but that's just one thing. The next thing is we're encouraging and challenging everybody to have gospel conversations. We talked last week about what is the gospel. and We walked through how we can think about the gospel, understand the gospel, and even explain it to someone else. And that's summarized in these little guides that are, again, up front and in the back, the Three Circles Life Conversation Guide. Just walks through those three circles we talked about last week, and I'll mention them again this morning. So again, these are some great resources to take. A New Testament. You can take a New Testament. There's a box of them right here. And put that in somebody's hand. And you can help them to actually have a copy of God's Word that they can read and they can look to and that God can use to help to plant that seed in their heart. We want to have gospel conversations. And then ultimately we want those gospel conversations to give us an opportunity to lead someone to faith in Christ. Now, we've got these uh, four-colored ping-pong balls over here. Again, this is just kind of a, a fun, silly little thing for us to do. But, man, it inspires me to watch this stack of ping-pong balls grow. And I expect there to be a lot more white ones in here than green ones because it, it seems to be that it's easier to invite someone to church than to have a gospel conversation. But I've been blown away by how many green ping-pong balls are in here. <clears throat> People are having gospel conversations. Now, Ben, I guess after the Upward Awards night and I present the gospel, I can just fill this thing up with green balls, can't I? It doesn't work that way. It'd be one ball, right? It doesn't matter if that's one conversation with just a whole lot of people that I'll be having Saturday. That's something every one of us can do. And then the blue ones mean that you have helped to lead someone to faith in Christ, and I pray that you would encourage that person to be baptized, whether that's here or at another church. That doesn't matter. But what matters is they follow the Lord in baptism. They have that public profession of their faith in Christ, and they unite with the church that they can study and grow and learn and serve in. We're going to have a baptism Sunday on March the 29th, last Sunday of this month. And my challenge for you is for you every day this month to ask yourself, will someone be baptized on March the 29th because of me? You can say yes to that question. But that means you've got to be working this month to share Jesus with somebody and lead them to faith in Christ. Encourage them to be baptized. There may be people here this morning that you know you're already Christian, but for whatever reason you've never been baptized. I invite you to come to talk to me. We'd love to baptize you. I already have one person lined up for that Sunday that would love to have many, many more. I would love it, Matt, if we had so many. I don't know where Matt went. I would love it if we had so many people baptized that I didn't even have time to preach. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't you love that? Be careful. Be careful. But let's pray about that. Let's work on that. But all of this, all of this you know, talking about who's your one, it got me to wondering, I did some research this past week, on what are the most effective or the most popular, let me put it that way, what are the most popular methods of evangelism? And the Pew, uh, I'm sorry, the Barna study group actually did a research study on that. And the top three most popular 
among evangelical Christians, the top three most popular methods were, first, at 43% praying for others' salvation, second, at 40% living in such a way as to encourage people to ask questions about their faith, what we might call lifestyle evangelism, that was 40%, and at 38% interactive conversations about moral and life issues that hopefully lead to spiritual conclusions. That's what we're calling gospel conversations. So praying, a lifestyle evangelism, and gospel conversations were the three most popular. Well, I want to say a few things about that real quick. First, while we should and must be praying for our ones, for people who are far from God, we spent time in this service praying. We just spent 30 days praying for those people. And Jesus himself commanded us to pray for them, didn't he? And he commanded us to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into the harvest fields. But I just want to say this, simply praying for the lost is not the same as evangelizing the lost. Praying is essential, but by itself is not enough. Jesus didn't say in the Great Commission, therefore go and pray that people will become disciples, did he? He said, therefore go and make disciples. Yes, we pray for them, but prayer by itself is not evangelism. Second, I want to just take a minute to talk about this idea of lifestyle evangelism. Now, I've heard a lot of well-meaning Christians try to explain their style of evangelism or their lack of evangelism altogether by saying that they're just trying to live in such a way that other people will notice how different they are and will ask them why they're so different. And they love to quote that uh, supposed saying of St. Francis of Assisi that says, Preach the gospel, always use words if necessary. They kind of like to, to use that as their justification. Now, don't get me wrong. I certainly agree that we are putting out a message every day, whether that's a good message or a bad message. And I have preached, and I will always preach, that yes, we must deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily, and follow Jesus. We must live a Christ-like lifestyle because people aren't going to believe what we have to say if they don't see us backing it up with our lives, right? We've got to walk the talk. We've got to practice what we preach. But there are a few problems with this lifestyle-only evangelism or this primarily lifestyle approach to evangelism. The first is that, and I hate to break the news to you, but nobody's that good. I'm sorry to have to tell you, but you're not that good a Christian. I'm not that good a Christian. Listen, I don't know a single Christian whose life is so holy, who is so selfless, who is bearing so much fruit of the Spirit that when people just interact with them on a daily basis, they are falling to their knees in repentance of their sins and crying out to Jesus. I don't know any Christian who lives their life that good. And listen, even Jesus. Now, Jesus did live a perfect life. Amen? Jesus was selfless. Jesus was so full of the Holy Spirit. He was healing the sick. He was multiplying food. He was calming storms, walking on water, and raising the dead. And with all of that, even Jesus had to use words. Jesus balanced His miracles with His teaching ministry. So, none of us are that good that we can just get by with lifestyle evangelism only. Can we agree with that? Can we be honest with ourselves? Okay, secondly, people just aren't that smart. People aren't that smart. Even if you were as near to Christ-like as humanly possible this side of heaven, lost people are spiritually blind. They are spiritually dead. Yes, they may see your good works. Yes, they may even give glory to God for your good works. Even the Pharisees who put Jesus on that cross said at one point, you must be from God to do miracles like this. But without 
us explaining, without us using our words, lost people aren't going to put two and two together. Again, they're not going to just look at your life and then all of a sudden decide, I need a Savior, Jesus is that Savior, and I need to turn from my sins and trust in Him to be saved. They're not going to come to that conclusion on their own. Let me share with you an example I learned while I was in Israel last month. We were in Caesarea Maritima, which is the Herod's capital there on the Mediterranean Sea. You'll put that picture up. Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to see, but there's a stone on the left. Now, it's just a recreation. The real one's in a museum. But on that stone, it says Tiberium Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea, which is Latin for Pontius Pilate, the prefect of Judea. Now, the Bible talks about Pontius Pilate. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian that wrote for Rome, did all this history stuff for the Roman Empire, he talked about Josephus, but this was the first archaeological record ever found of Pontius Pilate. So when the archaeologists found this, it was huge. And what our tour guide said there, and he said it at other places throughout the week, is that, you know, archaeologists are naturally, they naturally doubt a text whether it's the Bible or Josephus or Homer's the Iliad or whatever, an archaeologist naturally is skeptical of any written text because they are dealing with real-world physical proof. Okay, they want to find tools and artifacts. They want to find things, right? They want to unearth cities and buildings and stuff like that. And when they do... They have all kinds of different ways of dating it, right? They can carbon date it. They can look at what layer of earth it's in. They can compare it to other known structures or tools and pieces of pottery and compare it and say, okay, so we know this is from the late Bronze Age or whatever. They can kind of speculate on a lot of that stuff. But the holy grail, the holy grail that archaeologists look for is any kind of inscription. Any kind of inscription, a coin, Something like this, carved into a rock, a mosaic. Why? Because pottery and tools and ruins of rock walls can hint at the story. They can give clues about the nature of something. But when they find words that can immediately identify it and date it, that tells the whole story. Now listen, your lifestyle, your generosity, your good works, can give hints. They can give clues. They can tell part of the story. But just like archaeologists look for words, the lost people in your life, they're looking for words. They want to know why you live that way. They want to hear you explain the difference that Jesus has made in your life. We've got to use the words of the gospel to help people know the whole story. That's the best evidence in archaeology. Guess what? That's the best evidence we have as Christians. 1 Peter 1, 23-25 says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but what? The Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word, Paul, Peter says, that was preached to you. Our lives, our deeds, our actions, they're like flowers of the field. They will fail. But the Word of God is what lasts forever. Peter goes on in chapter 3 to say, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, 
Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, and we're to do that with gentleness and respect. That's what we're talking about. Being ready to share with others the reason for the hope that is within us. Listen, the people that you interact with on a daily basis should see something different in you. Our lives should compel people to ask us for the reason of the hope that we have. And we must be ready and prepared to answer them. But listen, it often takes us taking the initiative to prompt other people to ask that question. They're not going to just ask that question on their own. We've got to prompt them. We've got to say something. And not just sit back passively and wait for them to come to us. And sometimes God's going to put people, I'll say maybe even many times, God's going to put people in your path that guess what? You just have a few moments with them. In all this world, you're going to have a few moments with that person. You don't have time to win them over with your integrity and your lifestyle. You've got just a couple of minutes to be able to share the gospel with that person. You need to have a short elevator pitch style story. A quick 30-second, couple-minute thing that you can say to them that can at least plant the seeds, maybe open the door for you or someone else to have a gospel conversation with that person down the road. So this morning, I want to help us be prepared to tell others our own story of how we met Jesus, how He changed our lives. That's one of the greatest tools given to you by the Holy Spirit is your story, your testimony. People can argue with you about doctrine. They can argue with you about religion and about the Bible. But they can't argue with you over your own first-hand experience. What is your story and how do you share it with other people? Your story, your testimony, it's like your spiritual autobiography. It's what you believe in the context of your daily life. And this morning I want us to work through a few parts of your personal story and your homework this afternoon... Did you hear that? You got homework. It's to write your story. Write it out. But first I want us to read an example. The Apostle Paul's testimony. He's telling his personal story to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And by the way, I got to do a devotional when I was in Israel. Uh, I got to stand in the very place where Paul stood before Agrippa. And, and these walls back here, the, this stadium heard Paul's words echo out. It was such a powerful thing to know that I was standing in the place where this story took place. But let's look together at Acts chapter 26. And I want you to pay attention to these three parts of Paul's story. He begins in verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven. Brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions, we all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. 
I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So that's Paul talking about how he came to know Jesus. And then he goes on to say, So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. In this story, you see these three basic elements. Paul's life before Christ, how he came to know Christ, and what his life has been like after knowing Jesus. Now, when you watch television and you see these courtroom scenes and TV shows and movies, you'll have like your expert witnesses who kind of come in and they sort of talk in these theories and generalities. They're experts on X, Y, or Z. But then you have like these personal witnesses, what TV calls eyewitnesses. I was talking with Judge Hammond. He said that's not really a technical term they use in courts. Uh, you're just a witness. But, but he did say this, and I thought this was interesting. interesting. He said personal knowledge is one of the determining factors of whether you can be a witness. It's your competency. If you don't have personal knowledge to what you're speaking, you're not a competent witness. Well, a lot of us as Christians think we've got to be expert witnesses. We've got to somehow understand all the theology and be able to answer all the questions when all we need to have is the personal knowledge of who Jesus is and what He's done for us. That's all you need to have to be a witness. And if you're a Christian, guess what? You've got that personal knowledge. You've had that experience. And using Paul as, as a guide, there are three key elements in your faith story. And we can communicate the basic truths of the gospel to somebody through our story. I just want to run you through that real quick. The first is your life before Jesus. That's where we start. Now, I want to say this, because I've been to enough, especially youth conferences and youth camps are so bad about this, and sometimes at revivals and stuff, you'll get somebody up there want to share their testimony. They'll spend 15 minutes telling you about their wild life before they were a Christian. Oh, they'll talk about the parties, they'll talk about the girls and the booze and the this and the that and the other. And they go to a bunch of teenagers, a lot of them are sitting there going, this sounds like a lot of fun. And then they came to Jesus, and their life's been boring and dull ever since. You know, it's just not the way it works. So don't, don't build up your life before Christ to make it seem like, that, that man, you're missing out on all the fun now, because we know that's not true. But a lot of people unintentionally kind of do that with their testimonies. Your life before Jesus should be the shortest part of your testimony. Amen? Keep it broad. Keep it broad enough to appeal to whomever you're talking about. You know, not everybody can relate to you know, being addicted to drugs. That's some people's testimony, but not everybody can relate to that. So don't focus too much on some of those, but, but give enough details to be relatable. But at the end of this part of your testimony, you want to talk about how you realized you needed a change in your life. That's the point of this. That your life was like this before Jesus, and you came to the point where you realized this isn't working for me. This is the part of your story that you can even customize 
to fit whatever conversation, whoever you're talking with. Maybe, maybe there was a topic of conversation that led you to share your story. Maybe they were sharing a difficulty they were having and it prompted you to say, well, can I tell you my story? Here's a great place to make a connection with the person you're talking to. And when you're thinking about writing this part of your story, there are some questions you can ask yourself this afternoon. What about my life before coming to know Jesus will relate the most to the unbelievers I know? Keep it relatable. What did my life revolve around before Jesus? Where was I looking for security and identity and happiness and not finding it there? That can help you know what to be specific about. And then how did these things begin to let me down so that I realized I need to make a change? This part of your story connects to the three circles we talked about last week. First of all, it connects with God's design. When you're talking about your life before Jesus, let them know that, hey, you know, I matter. I have value. You have value. We're all loved by God. We're all made in God's image. But our sin and brokenness is is the result of rejecting God's love, of turning away from God's wisdom. Sin is all about thinking, I can do a better job with my life than God can. And the results of that sin are the brokenness, the fear, the shame, the guilt that you were wrestling with before you came to know Jesus. So when you're sharing this part of your testimony, you're talking about God wanted my life to go like this, but this is the way it was going. Because I had turned from Him. Because I was a sinner. Because I was thinking that life was all about possessions or career or having a good time or or trying to do it all on my own. Talk about the failed attempts to take care of your own sin and brokenness. Maybe it was going to church. Maybe it was throwing yourself at your job. Maybe it was you know, reading self-help books or trying to lose weight or whatever, but you just were turning to something. You were looking for that meaning and that purpose and you weren't finding it anywhere. This is your life before Jesus. And again, you keep that part of your testimony short and to the point. The second part of your testimony is how you came to know Jesus. How did you come to know Jesus? This This is the turning point in your life. This is the moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ and you became His follower. It's the greatest moment in your life because you went from being lost to being found, from being dead to being alive, from being in darkness to being in light. It's a dramatic part of your story. So describe it briefly, but describe it with excitement. Don't be afraid to go into enough details to paint a picture for the person you're talking, talking to. Maybe you can share a scripture verse or two, like John 3.16 or, or some verses in Romans that were shared with you. Maybe you could tell them the words of the prayer that you prayed when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you could talk about how you felt or what you thought in that moment. Now, of course, go into those details as best as you can remember. Don't make stuff up is what I'm trying to say, Right? Don't fictionalize this or make it more emotional than it was. Some people think that, well, if I didn't have some big Saul on the road to Damascus, blinding light, then I don't have much of a testimony. That's not true. The dramatic part of your testimony is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins because God loved you. Amen? It's not about what you did. It's about what Jesus Christ has done. To help you write this part of your story, again, some questions to prompt you to think about When was the first time that you heard the good news about Jesus? And how did you respond at first? Maybe you could tell somebody, look, people tried to tell me about Jesus. I went to church. I heard the preacher all this time. And I just just thought, man, this stuff is foolish. And Talk about those first times that you heard the gospel and rejected it, if that's part of your story. 
When and why did my attitude toward Jesus change? What was it about that moment when someone shared Jesus with you that it clicked and that you changed and that you you put your trust in Jesus Christ? What were the biggest struggles that I experienced before I accepted Him? And why did I finally make that decision to follow Jesus? Maybe Maybe you hit rock bottom. Maybe there was some point in your life that just drove you at that moment to cry out to Jesus. It's at this point in your story that you might want to uh, pull out one of those marked New Testaments. I don't know what I did with the one I had down here. Yeah, maybe this is the, the part where you pull out one of these. And you go to this New Testament and you share with that person some Scripture verses that were meaningful to you. Maybe you pull off one of those three circle tracks and you walk through that with them. Or you may not have time to do either of those things. And that's fine. You can briefly explain the gospel and how you came to faith in Jesus in this part of your story. Because this part of your story does connect with the gospel in a few different ways. Because in this part of your story, you get to share the gospel. Okay, That third circle of the gospel, you get to share that right here. You get to tell them, I came to understand that Jesus Christ loved me enough to die on the cross for my sins. And that I needed a Savior. And so I turned from sin. I confessed and I repented of that sin. I asked Jesus to forgive me. And I trusted in Him for eternal life. Guess what you've just done in those, what, 20 seconds? You just shared the gospel. You just told them the plan of salvation as a part of your story. But then you can tell them how you responded to that gospel. Not just what you heard, but what you did about that. That you did turn from sin and trust in Jesus. You repented and you believed in Him for salvation. And then you can say, God saved me. I became a Christian that day because God promised that if you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's how this part of your story connects to the gospel. And then the final part of your story is the difference Jesus has made in your life. Don't gloss over this part. A lot of times people, like I said, they, they, they build up their life before Jesus. Maybe they talk about this big dramatic way they came to know Jesus. And they kind of end their story right there. You've got to tell people, this is, this is probably the most important part of your story when you're sharing it with a lost person. Because you're telling them the difference that Jesus has made in your life. If possible, tie this last part of the story in to the first part of your story. If you had a specific problem or issue that you mentioned there, bring it back up and how Jesus has made a difference for you there. Okay, You were, you were struggling with, with loneliness, but now that you've come to faith in Christ, you know you're a part of the family of God and that Jesus is with you all the time. You thought that being a Christian was all about just keeping the rules and being super religious, but now you know that you have peace with God because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about rules and religion. Whatever it is, these two parts of your story are like bookends. They're mirror images of each other. But again, be honest. Okay, don't over-dramatize it. Don't make it sound like your life is perfect now. Right? When you become a Christian, does Jesus just suck all your problems away? No. Be real. Be honest. Let them know you're not perfect. You've not arrived. You're still on this journey. You're still in this process of, of recovering and pursuing God's design for your life. You've not arrived there yet. Be real with them. Jesus hasn't taken all your problems away, but Jesus helps you through your problems. Jesus gives you peace that you never knew. Jesus gives you wisdom. Jesus is always with you through the good times and through the bad times. 
Talk about having purpose, direction, and joy in your life. Maybe Jesus helped you reconcile a broken relationship. He's answered prayers in your life. He's given you strength to overcome your problems. He's given you ministries that you can be involved in and pour your life into. Think about Paul's story. He talked about before before he was saved, what was Paul doing? He was persecuting Christians. He was putting them in prison and having them killed. And what happens to his life after coming to Jesus? He's the one being put in prison. He's the one being persecuted. Right? That's the difference in his life. Was it all roses for Paul? No, it was mainly thorns for Paul. He was having tough times. But he did it and he talked about that God was with him. And he understood his purpose in life. Again, some questions to prompt you in in, in this part of your story. Uh, They're in your notes. How is your life different now? How has your attitude, your desires, your habits changed? What motivates you now to live differently? What is your purpose in life as a Christian? And even though you still mess up, how does knowing Jesus help keep you going? This part of your testimony should be constantly changing. You should have to rewrite this part of your testimony over and over and over again because God is constantly working your life right now doing things. Listen, your faith story is powerful because it describes a personal experience that happened to you. It's unique. It's relevant. And when you share it with someone, it gives them the opportunity to think about their life and what's their life like in comparison to your story. And it may force them to ask some questions. Well, what am I looking to for peace and happiness? What am I trying to find my identity in? Is that working for me? Maybe I need to turn to Jesus too. As you prepare to be able to share your story with others, pray. Ask God to give you wisdom. Ask God to give you the words to say. Again, write it out. Write it down. And when you write it down, write it down the way you're going to talk about it. Don't use great big churchy words you don't normally use, okay? Be yourself. You're not trying to impress anyone. You're trying to express Jesus and who He is and what He's done for you. Don't make stuff up and try to keep it short, three to four minutes. People don't want to listen to an audio book on your life, okay? Keep it brief. And remember, as you share your story, God's the one who is responsible for changing hearts. You're simply called to be ready to share. Now, very briefly, you may be like me saying, David, I grew up in church my whole life, and I became a Christian when I was a kid. So I don't have some great big dramatic story about my life before Jesus. And I got saved at vacation Bible school. There wasn't anything big and dramatic that day except for, you know, the messy games we played outside. You know, how am I supposed to, you know, fit a testimony into Paul's model? Well, I get what you're saying because that's me. I grew up in church. I was going to church nine months before I was born. I mean, I, I thought I knew Jesus from the day I could learn to walk and talk. But guess what? Just like Paul, just like somebody who came to faith as an adult or as a teenager, you and I have the same story. Because whether you were 7, 17, or 70, there was a point in your life when you did not know Jesus. And then you came to know Jesus. And Jesus has made a difference in your life. Amen? Like me, it may be that, you know what, I thought that having Christian parents and going to church was enough. I thought just knowing about God was enough. But I came to a point in my life when I realized that not, it's not just about knowing about God. I needed to know God. I needed a personal relationship with Jesus. It couldn't be my parents' faith. It had to be my faith. And so I, with my dad's help, 
was able to pray and to turn from my sin and to trust in Jesus. And Jesus has been with me every day since then. He's given me so many opportunities to make a difference in the lives of other people. And He's been a constant companion for me through good and through bad. That's a testimony right there. And listen, you might think about or share with somebody about, you know, hey, I think oftentimes about what my life would be like if I never accepted Christ. So yeah, I can't talk about big dramatic things I did before I was a Christian, but I can imagine what my life might be like today if I'd never given my heart to Jesus Christ. Amen? So yes, you have a story as well. Now remember, it's important to keep your testimony short. If you keep it short, you keep Jesus the main focus, not yourself. You give yourself more time to have that gospel conversation with others. Your testimony becomes an illustration when you have maybe more time to go into a fuller gospel conversation with somebody. But like I said earlier, sometimes you need more than a three to four minute uh, testimony. Sometimes you need less than that. Sometimes you don't have that much time. You need to have that elevator pitch. You know what an elevator pitch is? It's something that, it's where you can express an idea to somebody in the time it takes to, to ride the elevator up three or four floors, right? So we've talked about in, in some witnessing training we've done before having a 30-second testimony. And I'm going to talk more about this next week, which is one of the reasons why your homework is to write out that three- to four-minute testimony. Because next Sunday, we're going to talk about how to give a 30-second testimony. But I've got three people that want to share with you an example of what that's like. So listen to the three parts of this that we've talked about today in their stories. I went forward at age 11 in the church I grew up in at the prompting of a church leader. And through no fault of their own, there were 15 of us the same age that went forward that night. Mine was not sincere. I just went because my friends were going, and I had been told, if you leave here tonight and you do not go forward, you will spend eternity in hell. I didn't really know what that meant, but it didn't really sound good, and I was afraid. And my parents, I can still see my dad's face looking at me and going, but I did it. All through junior high, high school, and college, I knew that I had not made a sincere decision. Now, I didn't have a reckless college life. I continued to attend church services. And yes, uh, Matt, I was even in the church choir for most of my life, even adult choir. However, I still knew there was something, something not there. And I'm grateful to my great friend, Kay Anthony. She was Kay Powell then, and she invited me here to First Baptist Church. I was her one that day. And I came here, and it was, I've come home. And I accepted Christ at the end of a sermon that Dr. Leonard Dupre preached, and I was baptized into believer's baptism by him, and I know that it was real. I know that I am so grateful to God the Father for letting the Holy Spirit continue to never, ever leave me. He never forsakes me. He's always been there through cancer surgery for me, cancer surgery for my oldest daughter, and many other things that have happened. Um, Because of this church, when our first home burned to the ground, before my oldest daughter was, our oldest daughter was born, 
this church came forward and brought things and helped us with things we didn't have, food, dishes, just a fan, a fan helped us find somewhere to live temporarily. For that, I am grateful to this congregation. I'm grateful that God has continued to use me. One of the things I know he's called me to do is to be kind and friendly to everyone that I meet. That doesn't mean that I will see them forever, but to make people feel welcome, make people feel that they are accepted no matter who they are or where they come from. I am also know that because of the decision that I made so many years ago here in this church, that I have eternal life and that I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the older I grow, the things of this earth go strangely dim. Good morning. I'm James Bridges. First time I walked in, I came in this sanctuary, I was less than a year old. My mother brought me. Uh, I can't really tell you a time that I did not know about Jesus. My mother taught me at home. Sunday school taught me here, RAs. In March of 1953, we had a revival. And the preacher, visiting preacher, said that I could come to church every Sunday, go to Sunday school every Sunday, read the Bible every day, try to live by the Ten Commandments, but that would not save me. I must repent of my sins. Ask for forgiveness and follow Jesus. Amen. I accepted Christ on March the 15th, 1953. I was baptized on March the 18th right in this sanctuary. I have tried to live a life, a Christian life, but along the way I've messed up. And uh, I've done some things I'm not proud of. I've said things I didn't want to say or shouldn't have said. I'm a mortal man. I wished I could change it, but I can't. But I believe that Jesus Christ promised that if I repent and I ask for forgiveness, that he will call me home one day. Mm. And I look forward to great anticipation of going home and being with Jesus. Thank you. There was a time in my life when I lived a sinful lifestyle and was far away from God. Then one Saturday morning, I read a book about Bible prophecies called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. That book made me realize that Jesus Christ is truly the eternal Son of God and that the Bible is truly the inerrant Word of God. So I knelt to my knees that day and I prayed for God to forgive my sins and to come into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Now I'm a completely changed man from what I used to be, due entirely to God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Maybe today is part two of your story. Maybe somebody today right now, that like James or Sylvia, you've been in church your whole life, and you've thought that maybe just because you got baptized, or just because you walked an aisle, or just because you came to church, that you're good with God. Maybe you realize today that you've never truly turned from sin and trusted in Jesus. You've been trying to do it all on your own effort instead of relying on the effort that Jesus Christ has made for you. 
Maybe today is part of your story to come to faith in Christ. If it is, I'm going to be down front in just a moment to help you experience the difference that Jesus can make for you. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy, and I know that your spirit is moving. Your word has been proclaimed, the gospel has been shared, and we know your word never returns to you void. Father, we pray that you would prompt those today that may need to come and ask you to come into their life. They need to throw themselves upon your grace. There may be some here today, Lord, that are Christians, but they've never professed it. They've never come forward to identify with you through baptism, and I pray they'd do that right now. There may be others, Lord, that you're calling to unite with this church family. There may be those that, Lord, you're just you're breaking our hearts for the lost people in our lives, for our ones that we need to be more passionate about reaching God. May we come to this altar with broken hearts and throw ourselves before you and ask you to help us to not be afraid, but to be bold and to be caring and sharing the gospel with them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come as God's Spirit leads you today.